Tonight on this recorded segment of Extension 720, we talk about a topic dear to my heart and dear to the heart of Jonathan D. Sarna, who is our guest, a distinguished American historian who has specialized in the history of the Jews in America. And his new master work has just appeared, titled American Judaism, A History, published by Yale University Press. So, that history begins, it turns out, uh, 300 years ago. 350 years ago. 350, rather. 350, the date being 1654. That's right. What happened on that auspicious day? Well, in uh, the fall of 1654, uh, a group of Jews who had been expelled from Recife, Brazil, after it was recaptured from the Dutch by the Portuguese. Portuguese brought back the Inquisition, gave them three months to leave, and 23, according to tradition of those Jews, um, made their way to the furthest uh, reaches of the Dutch Empire, which was New Amsterdam, sailed into the port of New Amsterdam, and uh, asked permission to remain and set up a community. Peter Stuyvesant was not thrilled. He yes. was the governor. One know. has heard that Peter Stuyvesant really had it in for them and didn't want these alien Jews who were... Uh, people who had abandoned or, or rejected the saving grace of Jesus, didn't want them on board. Well, he, he really would have liked uh, uh, the colony to have consisted of Dutch Calvinists like himself. Yeah. He was a son of a minister, and he felt that in order to bring order to this place, it would be good if everyone shared the same religion. And in, a, in one of uh, his letters back to the Dutch West India Company, he warns, giving them, meaning the Jews, liberty, we cannot refuse the Lutherans and the Papists. Um, and I guess uh, his worst fears came true. They told him to let the Jews stay, and in fact, uh, the Lutherans and the Catholics, and uh, New Amsterdam became the the, um, the kind of place uh, that uh, that we know, a multi-religious community. I, I'm, I'm very fond of, of a line I found in that correspondence with, with Stuyvesant. The Dutch West India Company writes to him, you may therefore shut your eyes, at least not force people's consciences, but allow everyone to have his own belief, as long as he behaves quietly and legally, gives no offense to his neighbor, and does not oppose the government. In 1663, that was a fairly remarkable statement. So those Dutch Calvinists, at least as guided by the Dutch East India Company, were slightly more tolerant than the Calvinists up further in the north, in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. They resisted anyone but their absolutely. type coming in, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. These were, of course, those were Puritans. These were... Uh, it's not just Calvinists. The Dutch West India Company wanted to make money. And uh, basically, they argued that we have colonies in order to enrich the mother country. Jews and uh, other entrepreneurs are good for trade. Economics will trump religion. And that is the beginning of modernity. So these 28 from uh, Recife settle in, in New Amsterdam. What kind of life do they have? Well, um, the, most of those 23, 23. Uh, 23 soon move on. Uh, after all, the Dutch uh, aren't going to remain in New Amsterdam for very much longer. And although initially, not only they are there, but others come from Holland, and some of them even bring a Torah scroll, a sure sign that mm -hmm. you're establishing community, uh, we know that by 1663, most of them have left, and they've sent the Torah scroll back to Amsterdam. 
But then the British come, and to the great relief of the Jews that remain, uh, the British renew all of the same privileges granted by the Dutch, and under the British, the community grows. In New York proper? In, uh, in New York, and we know that uh, Jews come, uh, it's a slow growth, but you have um, immigrants from various places, from England, also from Holland, many of them Sephardic Jews, some of them, we might say, Jews who come out of the closet. That is to say, mm. they've been living underground yeah. um, uh, in Catholic countries, and now can re-emerge the, as the, Jews. These are remnants, human remnants of the Inquisition. These are conversos. Mm-hmm. who still are secretly Jewish, and now they can once again publicly become Jewish. Absolutely. And um, uh, they come, and uh, some of them do very well. The Gomez family, a good Sephardic name, they become exceedingly uh, wealthy in the 18th century. Uh, they do fur trading and are broadly involved in the North Atlantic trade. I've been told in the past, uh, and it brought me to that very location, that the Truro Synagogue uh, in Newport, Rhode Island is the first American synagogue. Is that the? That's not quite the case, is it? Actually, it's the oldest that still exists in ah. North America. But uh, the synagogue in New York, Shirat Israel, means a remnant of Israel, yeah. was much uh, earlier. Um, they like to say that it goes all the way back to 1654. We don't actually have any record of that. And indeed, uh, under the Dutch, Jews could worship, but only privately. But it's certainly, we know that a synagogue existed somewhere between 1695 and, and 1702, and uh, they have their own building on Mill Street now, William, South William Street in uh, Wall Street area of New York by, by 1730. The Turo Synagogue, which is one of my favorite places, is 30 years after that, but yeah. it's beautiful. I've told the story on this program uh, once or twice. I was on duty at the Naval War College many years ago when I was a young fellow and uh, went down to town to visit the synagogue where I had never been before but I knew about it and it was all quite empty and as I'm wandering around inside I hear a voice from off stage saying, is there something you'd like to see that I could be showing you now? And this was the rabbi, he was a young Irish (laughs) rabbi who was doing two year service at Chatura. Interesting. It's a, a remarkable synagogue because on the outside, it looks like any colonial It's structure. a nice colonial building, yeah. On the inside, it's Jewish, a replica, a miniature of the kind of synagogue sure. that existed in Amsterdam and London. And in a way, that was their strategy. On the outside, we mm-hmm. will be like everybody else, those Sephardic Jews said. On the inside, we will keep up all of our What's the demographics of this? How does one trace the Jewish migration into this country? If you start from uh, 1654 down to, say, 100 years later, how does the Jewish population build and where does it show up? Yeah, it's... Um, it's not large. Uh, time of the revolution, you have 1,500, 2,000 Jews. Most of the Jews are living in port cities, Savannah, mm-hmm. Newport, uh, Savannah, mm-hmm. Charleston, Philadelphia, New York, and Newport. But still only about 2,000. Yeah, and then it really begins to grow in the 19th century uh-huh. with the coming of Central European Jews, and it grows very rapidly. So, But the first major wave of immigration is... Uh, you say Central European. Isn't the first major wave German, basically? Well, I say uh, Central Europe because they're German and Polish, and of course Germany hasn't yet fully come together. No, it's so not a nation, to be sure. States. Uh, and we now know that many of those Jews were German wannabes, but actually uh, were more Polish than uh-huh. German, say from the province of Posen. 
but, uh, you know, you've got to say uh, 3,000 Jews in 1820, 15,000 Jews in 1840, 150,000 Jews in 1860, uh, and by 1880 or so, you had a quarter of a million Jews. So you get a sense of this very rapid migration. Enough Jews by 1860, <clears throat> so that one of the <clears throat> prime figures in the Confederate government right after Jefferson Davis is a Jewish gentleman. Right. His name was Judah P. Benjamin. Um, uh, and um, he had been uh, one of the uh, earliest uh, of the Jewish senators. Uh, he was in Louisiana, the other Jewish senator, David Uly from Florida. Uh, he, he then is part of the Confederacy, rises to be the right-hand man of Jefferson Davis, Secretary of State. Mm -hmm. His picture is on uh, Confederate currency. And, of course, after the Civil War, he's the one who escapes to England and starts an entirely new career as a very successful uh, barrister. Were the Jews essentially in the mercantile class by the time we reach the middle of the 19th century? Is that what they're basically doing? Yeah, uh, that's really um, where the opportunity lay, and those were the, the, uh, the skills that they brought with them. But we need to remember, we think of Jews as peddlers. You're in this period moving to a market economy in the United States, and... Jew, Jewish peddlers are playing a central role in the shifting and moving of goods back and forth across the country, and frequently those peddlers, after a while, would build up capital, you'd go to a place, you'd see it didn't have a store, you would set up a store. Now, so far we've talked about the Jews, but we haven't talked about Judaism, and the title of your new book is American Judaism, A History. Um, and you, of course, argue in this book, and you demonstrate... Uh, quite amply, that there is an American Judaism, that it took its own evolving form. Absolutely. Um, uh, and I think we see that beginning really with the American Revolution, maybe earlier, but in the American Revolution, uh, church and state are separated. Jews had not existed, had not previously lived under a system where religion and state were separated. And they find themselves in a world where there are many kinds of Protestants in different denominations, and that's influential. And uh, pretty soon we have Jews um, who say, why should there only be one synagogue in this community for all Jews? We uh, have our own ideas, and it's a free country. We ought to be able to break away. And in the 1820s, in Charleston and New York, the biggest uh, communities, we see them breaking away. What are the breakaway uh, groups uh, have in mind? How do they differ from the groups they've break broken away from? Well, it's interesting. There tend to be young Jews who feel that if Judaism doesn't change, it won't survive. That's the perennial fear in America. Um, so the New York Jews um, doesn't sound radical to ears. They want an early morning worship service. They want rich and poor treated alike. They want an emphasis on education. Uh, but that violates tradition. So, sure, if Israel says, oh, who knows where it'll lead if you start changing tradition. They break away and found B'nai Jeshur in the first Ashkenazic congregation. The Charleston Jews are much more radical. They want English language sermon. They want much shorter prayers. Uh, they want an end to free will offerings. Um, uh, and they uh, secede and form the Reformed Society of Israelites uh, for promoting true principles of Judaism according to its purity and spirit. They liked long titles then. That's the beginning of Reformed Judaism. I've been to 
what I think is the original synagogue in Charleston. And it looks like, um, externally, it looks like a church, does it not? Well, the synagogue in Charleston that you see, uh, if you go there now, it's uh, called Beth Elohim. It actually is built a little later in 1840. They had a fire, and it's rebuilt in 1840. It's, it's um, uh, as I remember it, it's, it's uh, built like one of these federal structures with pillars mm-hmm. and so on. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, it has an organ um, uh, and... Uh, uh, they are very proud of being the, 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 the home uh, where uh, Reform Judaism began. Where Reform Judaism in this country began. But Reform exactly. Judaism essentially originates in Germany, does it not? Well, it's a very interesting point. Um, the Charleston Jews didn't know much about Reform in Germany. If you compare mm-hmm. their prayer book in 1820s uh, with the German Reform prayer books, there's no similarity. But later, by the time we hit the 1840s, we do have German Reform rabbis who come to America, and uh, even Beth Elohim in Charleston has a ministry, wasn't an ordained rabbi, his name is Poznanski, who's come from Germany, and we can see German influence, and men like Isaac Mayer Wise, the great Reform leader, or David Einhorn, who was very significant as a Reform rabbi in Germany, they come to America, and bring reform, but there are differences. For example, um, mixed seating, which is characteristic of American Judaism, uh, comes in in the 1850s, beginning with Isaac Mayer Wise, uh, becomes one of the different key differentiating points between Orthodox and Reform. Mixed seating is not characteristic of German reform uh, because German Lutherans separated men and women, so it didn't occur to uh, reform Jews in Germany uh, that men and women should sit mixed. They would have found that quite shocking into the 20th century. The ultimately most interesting thing about religion is theology. Not all people think so. Maybe it's maybe it's ritual. Maybe it's uh, modes of practice. Maybe it's the ethical code. But I'm always fascinated by what ultimately is conceived about the nature of the transcendent and of uh, the works of the transcendent force and of how we are to relate to it. It's clear what Orthodox Judaism or earlier Judaism had to say about that. It really said there was one God. It was, we call him Jehovah. Uh, He is the creator. He has strong demands upon us. We obey those demands and commands. How did the Judaism evolving in this country and turning in the direction of reform, how did it vary, if at all, in its theology? Well, um, I think one of the key uh, differences has to do with their approach to whether the Torah, the Bible really was handed down from Sinai, or whether, in fact, um, uh, it was uh, evolving. And uh, they certainly believed um, that uh, it was evolving. It reflected, as they said in the uh, Pittsburgh platform, the primitive ideas of its own age, and they felt that, in many respects, Judaism uh, ought to be open to be to new scientific and historic Exactly research. parallel to conflicts and to developments in Protestant Christianity. Absolutely. And you have the same tension between traditionalists and modernists. So th- there were Jews who were arguing the inerrancy of the Torah. Absolutely. And um, uh, who, who felt, and I would say still feel, yeah. that um, uh, what the Bible says is what Jews uh, need to do. 
And um, what's interesting is later on, there is a middle way that develops. I think it originally sees itself as being conservative, as opposite to liberal, mm -hmm. but eventually it becomes the middle round, a ground, and it talks about tradition and change. That would be conservative. That becomes conservative Judaism. How many different century. Jewish, quote, denominations are there? Are there three, or do we count Reconstructionism and make it four? Well, um, some would go... Or do we count, do we count Jewish humanism and make it well, four? Well, I was going to say, some would would really uh, go beyond that. Um, if we define a, a Jewish movement as a movement that has three things, a seminary, a rabbinical association and a synagogue association, then um, Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, Reconstructionist. But what is so striking in contemporary Judaism is there are new movements. Uh, uh, there is humanistic Judaism. There is what's now calling itself trans-denominational and post-denominational Judaism. <laughs> and um, polydox Judaism and other movements that uh, are very small, and that's very American. Do they meet your, your test? Do they have seminaries and rabbinical organizations? Uh, they do not uh, yet. Trans, the, there, is a, there are some new seminaries, a new rabbinic seminary in Boston that calls itself trans-denominational, um, uh, and the humanists are trying hard, I think, to organize themselves, um, but uh, there's a very American idea that, uh, you know, I can decide uh, what kind of Jew I will be. The state doesn't have any um, say here. And, of course, there's no chief rabbi in America to determine what the right way of being Jewish is. It's a free country, and uh, Judaism, uh, therefore, differs. We way. are about to pause for some commercials, which we do every 15 minutes or so. When we return, I'd like to talk, get you to talk about uh, some of the themes that you develop in the second half of this book, particularly as you examine um, the effects of the Holocaust upon the, uh, the transformative effects of the Holocaust upon Judaic life as well as Jewish life in this country. We return directly to Jonathan D. Sarna, that's S-A-R-N-A, who is professor of history at Brandeis University, I think I failed to say that earlier, and is the author of this uh, magisterial new volume, American Judaism, A History, just published by Yale University Press. I suppose the single best-known uh, 
piece of Jewish liturgical music, would you agree? Absolutely. The Konidra, it's very old, and uh, it was something, a uh, piece of music that is shared by the J Jewish religious movements on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Uh, uh, at the first service, you could go to a reform, a conservative, an orthodox synagogue, and you would hear pretty well uh, that music. Uh, it's one of those prayers that uh, uh, that all of the different movements have uh, have adopted. And it's a commemoration of the beloved dead. Well, I mean, I think that it's interesting. It's the music that has really kept that prayer. Yes, yeah. The words itself were quite controversial, and some of the movements tried to change the words or to abandon them, uh, feeling that the notion that my vows, um, which I made perhaps too rashly, are uh, no longer vows, mm. and uh, I atone for them and so on, might be misconstrued. I don't have to pay my mortgage anymore. So they wanted to change them. Uh, but somehow that music told Jews it's the Day of Atonement. No. And those that abandoned the music uh, found that their congregants forced them to bring it back. And that again reminds us how powerful congregants have been in American Judaism. They're the members. They pay the dues. They determine what the service shall be. Great problem in theology generally, in theology in the Western world is uh, encompassed by that, that department of theology known as theodicy, whose central question is how do we reconcile the presence of evil in the world and the presence of God, uh, of, of a loving and protective God. And nothing more fully dramatized that for the Jewish people than their various sufferings across known Jewish history, but then summating in the dreadful Holocaust. Right. What did that do to Judaism itself? Well, it's, of course... One of the things that makes uh, America different is that the Holocaust did not happen here. Mm -hmm. And that distinguishes the history of American Judaism from European Judaism. But the effect was nevertheless very great. But it didn't happen here. It happened to the millions of relatives of American Jews. Exactly. Every Jew from Eastern Europe uh, had a relative. Uh, who had been left behind, and uh, we know that many tried to bring their relatives to America. It was extremely difficult. Uh, there was, I think, a great deal of guilt about it. Uh, and the Holocaust transforms American Judaism um, in, I would say, at, at least two ways. Number one, it brings to America about 300,000 refugees, some come in the 30s, some in the 40s, but these are people who survived, and they say we survived, obviously, for some purpose, and they, many of them dedicate themselves uh, to strengthening Judaism in the United States. And I, I myself was astonished uh, when I realized how many of the leaders of American Jewish life, Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, were either survivors themselves or the children of survivors. Um, and how many developments, whether it's the Lubavitch movement or the Kolel movement of ultra-Orthodox schools, uh, rabbinical seminaries, um, uh, or um, uh, or Jewish music, um, how much of it came from Holocaust uh, survivors or their children? Uh, and then, as I say, there's a second impact. 
which is that the theme of Holocaust and rebirth, rebirth meaning the state of Israel, becomes central to American Judaism, to the way Jews understand their faith. Um, at, at the central point of the service, there's a sense from some Jews of Holocaust and rebirth, uh, Holocaust Memorial Day, known as Yom HaShoah, and Israel Independence Day, which are closely linked on the calendar, uh, symbolize this this transformative series of events in post-Holocaust uh, Judaism. So really, American Judaism is totally transformed uh, by the events uh, of, of the Holocaust. But again, what happens in the theology? What do our theological... Um, uh, thinkers handle, how do they handle the problem of theodicy? There is, of course, a, a debate. In fact, that some of the earliest theology writing of substance comes in the 1950s, yeah. and there is a struggle. I mean, it goes everywhere from an idea talked about in the 60s, God is dead, and um, uh, to um, uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel uh, talking about how God hid his face uh, during the Holocaust, um, and others feeling that must be a sign of the Messiah uh, uh, being imminent. And in the Lubavitch world, mm. that was one of many signs that they saw. Well, we, we need to pause and, or, and do a, a sidebar or a footnote and explain who the Lubavitch are and what Hasidism is, because that's a major movement. It doesn't... Uh, enroll the majority of American Jews, but it's a very strong presence. And what's amazing about it is that it was a movement that Jews in the 1930s hardly knew. Exactly. Um, Hasidism, which is a pietistic uh, movement that arose uh, in Europe and grows rapidly uh, in the 18th century, mm -hmm. um, uh, really with a, it's a movement centered around the Rebbe, grand rabbi, it is more emotional and spiritual, perhaps putting less emphasis on the intellectual. Um, it's, a and, bit of, it's a bit of a happy time version of Judaism back in those days. Well, I mean, in a way, it was a sense of rebellion Ecsta against but the also rabbis and against... But also people. ecstatic in some of its practices. Absolutely. Isn't it? yeah. um, and uh, it was not a movement that had come to America. Indeed, many of the rebbies said, don't go to America. It's an unkosher land. Mm -hmm. You can't possibly be Jewish there. But, of course, uh, with the Holocaust, those who survive do come. Uh, some And they go two ways. Some of them say, we've come to America, we're going to rebuild, and we're going to create an enclave. Uh, let's take the rabbi, the Satmar Rebbe, the rabbi who came from a place called Satmar, Satumare in Hungary. And his followers do set up an enclave. Uh, eventually, uh, it is called Kyrgios Yoel, um, and um, most Americans, most Jews have never seen them, most Americans don't. But Lubavitch and their rabbi, uh, who originally was in a town called Lubavitch, uh, he comes to America in 1940, he comes in a wheelchair, I think everybody thought, well, it's going to die out, mm. but uh, let it go in peace. Uh, but remarkably, uh, he, um, and even more, his uh, son-in-law, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, 
they uh, decide to take this movement and they're going to educate American Jews. They're going to send emissaries uh, all over the country to bring Jews to back to Judaism, back to Lubavitch. And over time, uh, this becomes one of the fastest growing movements of the post-war uh, uh, era. There's uh, probably no community that doesn't have a Lubavitch center and increasingly no college campus that doesn't have an emissary. How do they differ in practice or in belief from uh, standard uh, orthodoxy? Uh, well, first of all, uh, they, um, I think, have a, a much greater sense that it's important to meet Jews where they are and to bring them back. Uh, but there were certain aspects of, uh, of what the Rebbe did that uh, were done nowhere else. For example, uh, the Rebbe said that if you go to a certain community, you're going to be there for life. Well, that meant that over time, the Lubavitch emissary got to know everybody, and uh, uh, as other rabbis came and went, he became the senior figure uh, in town. Lubavitch um, proclaimed itself over all of the denominations didn't really recognize them. It went its own way, and it said, we are going to take orders from our Rebbe, uh, the Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson. We are his disciples. We are a well-organized unit. You know, we don't see ourselves as coming under your community, your JC, your Jewish Community Relations Council, or anything like We're that. We're not coming to you, but you can come to us. Yeah, but they managed to raise a lot of money yeah. outside the organized community and uh, managed to be very successful and grow. Now, in terms of the history of religion, a fascinating um, question always is what happens when there are messianic expectations which are not fulfilled? Uh, towards the end of his life, uh, Schneerson essentially allowed others to conclude, or maybe he assisted them and prompted them to come to the understanding that he was in all likelihood the Messiah. And upon his death, uh, there would be a transformative event and he would in some form or other return and history would take a decisive either end or take a totally new direction. Uh, it hasn't quite happened. He's no. been dead now for about 10 years. Oh yeah, right? he, uh, he's been... Uh, there, uh, I actually have a picture in uh, in my book about the Mashiach card. Long no. live the Rebbe, King Messiah forever. Um, and it was predicted that once he died and his messianic uh, uh, reconstitution did not occur, the movement would fall apart. That hasn't happened. And that either. has not happened. Why and, not? Well, it's a really, of course, a fascinating story that I think students of religion will be studying for generations. The movement divides in some ways between the messianists and those who play mm -hmm. down the messianism. Um, at one time, even the headquarters are divided. There's a wall between the two two groups. Um, but I think over time, um, uh, what happened is uh, when he didn't come back, they felt that they nevertheless had to carry forward his teachings and his mission. And um, what has been most remarkable to see is how these emissaries now have played down the, the Messiah part, but played up the sense that we have a mission from the Rebbe to bring more and more people to Judaism and uh, moved on. Now, what's the census or the profile of American Judaism? How many Jews are there as far as we can calculate in this country? And where are they located religiously, if at all? Yeah, it's uh, we, we say that 
uh, now there are about uh, 5.2 uh, million Jews. That's actually slightly down uh, from uh, what it once was. Um, interestingly, um, the uh, largest group uh, today uh, would is the reform movement in terms of the number of Jews who declare their adherence to the reform movement is larger uh, now than the conservative movement, which is slightly smaller. And uh, orthodoxy, although very visible, because orthodox Jews tend to be more visible, is much smaller. Or, or I would say roughly today we think uh, 9 to 10%. Uh, on reform and conservative together would probably um, uh, be another 70%, leaving as many as 20, maybe more percent uh, of Jews uh, who either don't mm. adhere or say they are something else. Uh, in fact, it's been said that the fastest growing movement in Judaism is other. That is, people who do not adhere to one of the major movements. The Reconstructionist movement, which we mentioned, is also small, yeah. about 1% or less. But again, uh, its ideas have been quite central. But the category of other uh, is made up largely of those for whom other is secularism, who are who essentially disavow religion and religious commitment and and in the in the jewish life that i've lived over a rather long time that uh, lived essentially within the precincts of university life uh, most of my jewish colleagues have not been uh, observant of anything though they often have a kind of nostalgic or an otherwise faithful connection to the jewish people and they want to go on thinking of themselves as jews even though they're non-Jewish wives find it rather hard to fully go along with the gang. And that's certainly... Is that said too cynically? Well, it's certainly the case. I, I, I've seen much of the same at uh, Brandeis University Even at and Brandeis. I think elsewhere. Um, depends where you go, of course. Um, I think that uh, this notion of secularism, a sense that ethnicity is the tie that yeah. links Jews, yeah. Uh, is an old idea in America, and B'nai B'rith uh, talked about that idea in the 19th century. So that uh, somebody might very well say to you when you ask him what you are, he'll say, well, religiously I'm essentially agnostic. Culturally, I'm, I'm Jewish. Jewish. Yeah. Um, it's proven hard to pass that on sure. uh, to the next generation, and I think many secular Jews have found, sometimes to their very great disappointment, that their children and their grandchildren don't know anything about uh, this world which is so central to the grandparents. Um, there are communities uh, where secularism uh, has declined enormously in, in Jews in Memphis or in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where their neighbors are so religious, you find every Jew is a member of a synagogue. And I would say that this kind of secularism that once existed in, in circles where Yiddish was the link, uh, Yiddish cultural secularism really declined very substantially in the 1950s because it was tainted with communism and a lot of their children were afraid and said, oh, we're going to go back to the synagogue. Uh, that's a way of proving that we're uh, good Americans. Uh, if under God has, is in the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, we'd better be under God as well. And uh, the enrollment in Yiddish schools absolutely plummets at the end of the 1950s. So an organized secularist movement today is much weaker than it was in the middle of the, of the 20th century. 
Uh, but there are still, um, I think, uh, many secular Jews, and an argument could be made that that movement is somewhat strengthening, although I think great questions remain as to whether um, it can be maintained without a religious tie. Is secularism a, a one-generation phenomenon? We are just about out of time, and I rather regret that because there's so much more that we could talk about. But as you well know, and of course you treat this in the book, one of the continuing problems for the American Jewish community is, well, to quote um, uh, the famous lawyer from Harvard, they, uh, they used to want to kill us, now they want to marry us. That is to say, the intermarriage rate or the outmarriage rate is over 50%, is it not? For young Jewish people who get married, more than half of them marry non-Jews. Uh, certainly the numbers, they're somewhat disputed, but if they're not 50, it's certainly 40, and intermarriage is one of the great challenges that the community faces. Uh, it's a fascinating moment where we see simultaneously assimilation and revitalization. One week you read high intermarriage statistics, and the next week you read about uh, new Jewish day schools, renewal of Jewish education at the university level, and so on. And it's precisely because it's such an interesting moment that it seems to me worthwhile looking back at uh, at this history. Uh, I think Jews have always been worried about what the future will bring, and that's a good thing. Yeah, well, looking back is what historians do, but uh, from history one also might project into the future, or at least the future beckons and requires some uh, estimation. Uh, is there ground for... Uh, predicting that Judaism as a religion and Jew and the Jewish world as a community will in fact survive. Uh, I try to be optimistic. Uh, as I looked at this history time and again, there was fear that Judaism would not survive. And time and again, there was a revitalization movement. There were Jews who came back to tradition. There were young Jews who said, follow us, we're going to reinvent Judaism. And they do. Mm -hmm. And um, I see young Jews doing that today again. And the question, I think, is which of these two directions will turn out to be the direction to the future? Will it be assimilation? Will it be revitalization? And that's in the hands of the current generation of American Jews. Um, I close the book with a quote from the great philosopher Shimon Ravidovich, uh, uh, who said that a nation dying for thousands of years means a living nation. Uh, our incessant dying means uninterrupted living, rising, standing up, beginning anew. If we are the last, let us be the last as our fathers and forefathers were. Let us prepare the ground for the last Jews who will come after us and for the last Jews who will rise after them, and so on until the end of days. Well, I will close by saying, Loma Hofsen, as es wird so sein. How's your Yiddish? I'm suggesting in that Jewish language that let us hope it will be so. Uh, and a great aid to understanding the process uh, historically and uh, in the present is this excellent new book by Jonathan D. Sarna, American Judaism, A History, just published by Yale University Press. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.